Comrades and welcome to season three, episode one of Spectre. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by two very special guests today. Uh, comrades, do you want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, um, I can go first. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm Josh. I run the YouTube channel Socialist One. I am on YouTube. I'll say ran more past ten. So I made a video in a, a long ass time now, uh, but maybe some the grand return. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a member of the Communist Party of Britain and. Um, yeah, they're the Young Communist League as well, and I'm involved in trade union stuff as well, uh, a shop steward and all that, so yeah, keep uh, fighting the good fight here in Yorkshire. All right, so there, my name's Gary Steele, <clears throat> uh, I'm a member of the Communist Party, uh, used to be YCL, fi- uh, just finally aged out uh, for my son's 10-year stretch, uh, aye, and I'm a, a lifetime model fan and Wealth Society member. Perfect, comrades. Thank you very much. That's superb. Uh, so, yeah, I'll just kind of kick us off. Uh, obviously, this uh, episode is kind of focusing around uh, football uh, and especially drawing heavy reference to the GDR. Uh, obviously, Joshua YouTube channel, uh, the content on just the GDR in general has been fantastic. Uh, I'm definitely most captivated by the kind of football aspect uh, that you've done for an episode, which is kind of inspired uh, this one as well. So, before uh, I guess we dive into football and everything else related to it and drawing reference from the GDR. I think it's a good place for, especially if we get folk who, who might not be too familiar, uh, maybe the subject of football has brought their interest into this. Uh, so just to see if you could ex- explain, you know, what was the, the GDR uh, and, you know, if we can get a wee kind of brief history about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, um, it was uh, the socialist state on German soil as it, as it fashioned itself. Um, and to, you know, to truly understand, obviously, the football scene, um, you know, we have to understand the material conditions of of, the, of East Germany and how society was before East Germany was founded as well. Uh, so to do that, it goes slightly before the war and, you know, just, just before 1945. So the land that is East Germany, it's about the eastern third of the country. It's a very primarily rural part of Germany, um, especially before the GDRC came in. Uh, it was always traditionally the breadbasket for the major industries over in the West. So uh, think of the Ruhr Valley, which is, you know, Dortmund, um, Mönchengladbach, um, all these kind of places uh, where the major steelworks were. The Krupp was the major one, which um, made a lot of the weapons for the, the Nazi war machine. And obviously the German war machine before that, but most uh, criminally involved in in the Nazi war effort. Um, you know, the other industries as well, like Stuttgart for, for Porsche and Mercedes and um, BMW in Munich and all that. A lot of these industries were over in the west of Germany. Um, as for the east, it was uh, there was a bit of industry around Berlin and a bit of mining around in the south in Saxony. Uh, but it's mainly a very rural place, and it grew the food to to feed the working class over in West Germany. And that's how Germany developed. It was very very much intended that way. So the land is run by um, a class of landlords called the Junkers, who were very closely related to the German army. Um, so 
they got their land by crusading into the east and driving out the native Slavic population um, and building their their realms on the back of a genocide of, of, of the Slavic people at the time. And they were the most involved in Nazism as well. So this is a very criminal criminal class. Um, and obviously, 1945, the end of the Second World War, uh, the Red Army sweeping in, um, obviously full of vengeance for what, they've, what the Germans have done to the Soviet Union. You know, we think of 28 million dead um, just on the Soviet side, uh, the burnings of villages across um, all of the, the, the occupied territory of the Soviet Union, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, parts of Russia. Um, it's absolutely devastated. So obviously when the Red Army sweeping in and, and it, there's, there's a German population there resisting them who have been brought up on this idea of racial hatred, seeing the Slavic people as subhuman. Obviously, um, they have this Jewish element as well about every communist is a Jew. Um, and, you know, it's, it's it's crazy the amount of ideolog ideological hate the German people had at this time. So you have in the West where there's only um, for the relation of forces, you know, for every one German soldier fighting the Allies in the West, there's 10 fighting the Soviets in the East, um, you know, just to get a sense of scale of it. Um, you know, and there's people, there's, there's young children, 16, 14, 12-year-olds defending Berlin. There's over 60-year-olds defending Berlin. Um, so you can imagine that just the entirety of the place is completely ruined. You know, whatever industry they had was destroyed, gone. Um, Berlin's in rubbles. Uh, Dresden's obviously in rubbles after we firebombed it. And the likes of that, it's it's an absolute wasteland. And um, to, to uh, lead on that as well, to make matters worse, obviously the Soviets, they bring out um, a vast majority of what industry is actually left. So... Um, there's 2,000 factories that are actually just packed up and sent on trains over to the USSR to try and rebuild their economy, obviously, just as just as destroyed. That included 100% of the, the automotive industry, uh, 90 to 100% of the chemical industry, 93% of fuel production, um, and up to 50% of any quotas of new factories that are rebuilt after 1945, up to 50% of their produce is also sent over to the Soviet Union. So it's very much on the back foot it's a very underdeveloped society. Um, in addition to that as well, East Germany, what becomes East Germany pays 98% of Germany's war debt. The West, obviously, the bigger two-third, the more industrially developed, um, only pays 2% of the entire German war debt, which is billions and billions of marks. Um, so you can see the East is really getting the worst deal out of this. In addition as well, the land of East Germany, like that ge geographically, is really poor. Um, it's only really got two natural resources, and that's uranium, uh, which is owned by the Soviet Union. You know, they they seize that and they uh, they open their own mines there. And brown coal, which is a horrific resource for the environment, um, it create you know, so you kind of want to avoid using that as much as possible. So it didn't really have much naturally it could export. Um, it had to rely on importing of all goods because Germany wasn't meant to be divided this way. You know, it was always meant to be this single country of the East feeding the West and the West selling its products back over. Um, so we see these unnatural borders and obviously most, most obviously in the case of Berlin, where half of the city is divided, you know, so on the one, on the East, there's obviously the Soviet zone and on the West there's the British, American and French zones of Berlin and Berlin is 180 kilometers away from the rest of West Germany as well. So it's just this island of capitalism, which becomes a massive thorn in the side of, uh, of what becomes East Germany, uh, for the 40 years of its existence. So, um, yeah, there's also a case in the border as well where, um, you know, there's towns that are also divided as well. So towns are divided in this way where 
a factory would be in West Berlin, but all the worker villages are in sorry in, in West Germany, but all the all the housing is in East Germany. You know, so you have to cross an international border just to go to work, and people are being paid in the West and living in the East, and vice versa. And it was just absolute chaos because Germany was never meant to be divided. The idea in 1945 at the Potsdam Conference was to uh, demilitarize Germany, denazify Germany, and then reunite it as a neutral nation. And that's something which the East and the Soviet Union always fought for, um, in contrast to the West, who were, were very different, um, as we'll get on to. So if we kind of put ourselves into the mind of, um, of a German citizen in, in 1945, uh, probably born 1900, let's say, they were born in 1900 and the amount of horrific things they'd seen. So they would have been born into the German Empire um, under the Kaiser, which was a semi-constitutional monarchy, kind of like our own, but a little bit more dictatorial. Um, they likely served in the last few years of World War One, And if they survived that, they would return to a country which was just starving. There was mass poverty um, because of the British blockade during the First World War. They would have witnessed a revolution which tore down the, the, the government of the Kaiser, um, but a very much failed revolution as well because although the Kaiser went, uh, the generals stayed, the Junkers stayed, the, the capitalist class stayed and continued to run Germany in a very similar system. They would have seen vicious counter-revolution uh, through the fight for the Freikorps, who obviously murdered the great communist Karl Liebknecht and uh, Rosa Luxemburg. Um, and we recently celebrate the anniversaries of, of their deaths just, just today, actually, I think, yeah, um, on the day we're recording. Um they would have seen the hyperinflation where money was absolutely worthless. You know, there's there's pictures of children um, using it to, as building blocks, just these stacks of money that's just completely worthless. And they use it for firewood, they use it for wallpaper, and just this absolutely crazy depression. And then most viciously, they would have seen the rise of Hitler as well. Um, you know, the, the, the most vicious counter-revolution there was. Uh, they would have seen the, their friends, you know, their, their friends in the trade unions disappear or flee in exile. Uh, they would have seen their Jewish um, neighbours disappear. Um, and then obviously they would have, uh, if they had children, they probably would have been conscripted into the war and been killed. Um, and then in the last days as well, they may have been conscripted into this um, this people's militia. It was called the Folkstorm, the, the people's storm to defend the dying system. So these people had seen so much, longed for change. They wanted to see a, um, a system that was in favour of the working class for the first time. Um, and there was this real desire to have revenge against those that started the war um, and a real desire to, to build a system in favour of the working class. And this was shown in two referendums that are held in both the Western Zone and the Eastern Zone in Saxony and Hesse. Um, and this vote was a people's vote on the expropriation of the capitalists and the landowning land classes who were complicit in Nazi war crimes. And in the East, um, 77% voted in favour of this, voted in favour of nationalising this, this land. So, of course, the Soviets are very happy about that. They're like, brilliant, the people support our policies. Um, let's put the Nazi war criminals in prison and steal their land, you know, and, and take back their industries for the people and redistribute the lands towards the peasants. You know, the policy was called um, Junker land in peasant hands. So, you know, just this direct transfer. Um, and a very similar result happened in the West. There were... 62% in favour um, in the West of doing these measures. But of course, this doesn't, this goes against the, the American um, occupiers' uh, desires. You know, they wanted to try and rebuild Germany on the, the old capitalist lines. So the, the referendum's rejected and it's just kicked down the road. Um, and so they hold another one, hoping that maybe people have got bored. Um, they hadn't got bored. It had actually been 
pretty annoyed by this, <laughs> very infuriated. Seventy-two percent vote for uh, the nationalisation of this, and of course, it's ignored again because um, it whiffs of communism. So there's referendums like this that are later held across the British zone as well in Berlin. In the end, you know, across all of Germany, um, these referendums show that people wanted to claim back what was rightfully theirs and um, destroy every remnant of Nazism. So um, in this time as well, you see the rise of anti-fascist parties um, and cultural groups in the East. So, you know, even in, even amongst the rubble, there's theatre groups that are being founded in every workplace. Uh, they're, they're performing the old German classics, but also new uh, plays by the likes of Bertolt Brecht, who was um, a really famous uh, German communist who was um, a playwright as well. Um, he actually fled from the West to the East as well, which is a story you don't hear about very often about the migration the other way around. Uh, so this was founded in the weeks just after the Second World War. In the West, um, it took three months for parties to be formed, uh, for, for cultural groups to be formed, because, again, they feared uh, the influence of communists in these organisations. So the major point of the, the, the second uh, after the post-Second World War is denazification. You know, it was one of the, the major... Uh, sticking points in the Potsdam Treaty, there were there were plans to to root out Nazism across all of Germany, um, but it doesn't go to plan as as we full well see in the history of Germany. So, as the Red Army storming into the east, um, a lot of these Nazis flee to the west because they knew that they'll be treated nicely by the British, by the Americans. Um, obviously, you see the likes of Operation Paperclip, um, which is this famous plan to have commandos and SAS units. Um, steel German scientists, German uh, rocket scientists and nuclear scientists and all the likes of this and take them back to the West. Uh, the most famous one be Werner Braun, um, who was involved in designing the V2 rocket, goes on to find NASA and the likes of that. So um, obviously then we see the Nuremberg trials where they're the high Nazi criminals. So, you know, the Nazi leadership, Goering, Goebbels, um, Himmler, the likes of that, they're all put on trial um, and either had executed or commit suicide in prison. Um, and escape justice. Um, and for the West, this was kind of the end of the story. Um, it actually becomes, they, they stopped their denazification process in 1951. Um, and overall in the West, there's actually fewer convictions of Nazis than the number of concentration camp workers at Auschwitz. And, you know, you imagine these hundreds of concentration camps across Germany, Poland, um, you know, all of all of Europe. And um, there's fewer convictions in West Germany than, than just one camp. It's, it's absolutely vile. So there's Nazis that keep their positions in government, the army, the judiciary, teaching, the civil service, all these crucial parts of the state. are still absolutely festering with Nazis. Um, East Germany released a book actually called The Brown Book, um, and they found that there's still 1,500 um, outright Nazi war criminals, not just Nazi party members, but war criminals who are still... Um, keeping in high position in all aspects of West German society. They try and knock it off as communist propaganda, but um, it soon comes quite clear that it's actually true, you know, um, as it is most most times. Um, when we look over to the, the other side, the East, obviously denazification was a completely different affair. It was actually taken seriously. There was an actual active effort to try and root out every Nazi element in society. Um, so... Any Nazi party member is immediately stripped of their job, is gone. Um, and if they wanted to get it back, they would have to, first of all, not be a war criminal, just um, be proven to be a fellow traveller. So, say, a teacher who had to join the party, and they would have to undergo a series of tests and um, 
you know, re-education to show that they're deserving of a place in public life. But the vast majority of times, the way that they refilled these roles was by having ordinary working class people educated to the standard to be able to fill these gaps in society. Um, and that was across all of East Germany, those massive education programs uh, from the, the most rural backwater villages to the biggest cities. Um, there was a massive concerted effort to try and raise the general level of society for completely free as well. You know, there's none of this um, tuition behind an economic barrier or anything like that. Um, so just for us as examples of the kind of people who are running the states as well. Um, so the leaders of East Germany, um, Walter Ulbricht, who was the first general secretary of the so what becomes the Socialist Unity Party, which is a fusion of the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party. Um, he fled to the, U the USSR during the Second World War, but before the war, he was a, he was a carpenter, just an ordinary working class guy involved in communist politics. Um, and then he comes back and he takes the, the reins of the state. And he's um, obviously from a very humble background and he's been educated in the Soviet Union. His successor, Eddie Honecker, who takes charge in 1971, he was a roofer and um, he's, he spent the war in a Gestapo prison for being a communist. Um, his, his parents were miners as well and everything like this. You know, it's all from um, very similar backgrounds to ours, you know. Um, whereas in the West, uh, the first chancellor of West Germany, uh, Konrad Adenauer, he's the mayor of Cologne during the Second World War. He wasn't a Nazi party member, but he was complicit in Hitler coming to power and was very happy to continue ruling during the Nazi years. Um, the founder of the West German secret police, obviously we always hear about the Stasi, don't we? You know, we all know the word, the, the Stasi and how they knew what kind of toothpaste people were using and what breakfast they and the like of that. They don't know that the West Germany had its own intelligence service, which still exists. It's the, the BND, the... Um, the Bundesnachtrichtdienst, um, and uh, the founder of that was a guy called Reinhard Galen. He was the head of German intelligence um, in the Soviet Union during the Second World War. So you know, and obviously he was spared the the noose because of all this knowledge that he had on the Soviet Union, and, and you know, all these, um, you know, because obviously he'd been involved in Hitler's war cabinet. So you know, Nazis they obviously make the best anti-communists. And in this new Cold War, he was gonna um he was gonna be a very useful tool. Whereas you compare that to the head of the Stasi. Um so there was Eric Milka, he was a, a communist as well, um, an ordinary working class guy. He was actually um he had to flee because he killed a policeman during the nineteen thirties, um, who were protecting Hitler. And then there was Marcus Wolf as well, who was a Jewish intellectual, again had to flee during the Second World War. Um, and these were the kind of people that were running these two states, you know, and you can kind of decide from there which one was the more progressive one. But if we get into the kind of actual events that get onto the creation of the GDR, so I've waffled there a little bit. Um, but the major sticking point is that the West divides Germany first. It's, we're always told, you know, the, the Winston Churchill speech, the Iron Curtains descending above Europe, the like of that, you know, the Soviet Union is um, separating itself from the national community. It's very much the opposite. So in the German case, um, during, I think it's 1947, um, West Germany creates its own currency without consulting the East as well, without talking to the Soviet Union. This obviously comes as a bit of a surprise to most German people and especially to the Soviet Union because it now creates an economic border between the two Germanys, not an official one, but an economic one. It's so like I say, that example of Berlin, but these towns as well where people are working in one country and living in the other, um, there's now these two tiers of society. 
you know, and it's just threatened to absolutely destroy um, East Germany because, you know, they're going down the path of caving for the working class. The West is obviously continuing on the capitalist system. It's they're, they're incompatible. They're having these open borders together. So they block, they blockade Berlin um, as an absolute last resort. And this is always seen as a, a Stalin offensively trying to, to retake Western Berlin. No, it was a negotiating tactic because the Allies weren't talking to the Soviet Union. You know, they just refused to negotiate at all and they go AWOL. So what's the last resort? We um, we shut off all Western access to, to Berlin. And, you know, this wasn't an effort to starve people out. Food still got in, but all vital, you know, all means of trade were, were just immediately ceased. And you can see how desperately they want to cling on to Berlin because they're, they have the Berlin airlift, which is uh, where there's a plane every seven seconds landing into Berlin to deliver vital goods and the like of that. Um, so, yeah, that's the kind of first step onto the path of German division. And the next one is where the West, uh, the West German um, state is formed in um, in 1949, a few months before the East Germany is formed as well. And that's um, that's the West. That's the West there creating an iron curtain and setting up the Cold War. You know, um, all this time. The East is arguing for unity. They're arguing for demilitarization, uh, denazification. And the West is just being ag- aggressively every single time um, trying to break down these goals and breaking down the the, the agreements that agreed during the war, um, especially the Potsdam Agreement. So West Germany is founded a few months later. East Germany is founded on uh, the 7th of October, 1949, almost as a historical accident. But um as Bob Ross says, a very happy accident, you know, definitely. Um, I just want to read a little speech from Eric Honecker as well, um, which he gave about the founding of the of, of East Germany. And he says, on the 7th of October, 1949, a German state entered the scene, which wrote on its banners, not war, but peace, not hate, but friendship between peoples. For the first time, there's a German state, which its people can be proud of and hold their heads high with before the world. A state where the people are free from exploitation and oppression, in the GDR, there is a state where all policies for the betterment of humanity, for the happiness of the people, for the interests of the working class and all working people. A German state has arisen which embodies societal progress and will march forward with the Soviet Union, with the other socialist lands and with all anti-imperialist powers across the world. So, stirring stuff, you know. And again, if you imagine you're this man who was born in 1900, who had seen so much pain and so much hatred and so much chaos and destruction, to then see a state that's arisen in your interests, where you have a direct role in the creation of the society, a democratic voice um, in how you run your workplace, um, in the building of industry in places that had never seen it before. Um, if you're a woman as well, you would have seen from the creation of GDR um, equal equal rights between men and women. You know, the pay gap was abolished. It was illegal to pay women any less. Um, there was efforts to ensure that um, they were in work, so by the mid-70s, uh, 97% uh, percent of East German women are in the workplace, um, and they could do that because they had a free childcare, they had excellent um, rights when it came to abortion as well, and obviously control in the family, um, you have obviously free contraception like that, they had uh, maternity pay, uh, maternity leave, and obviously the pay was for a year, at full wage as well, just these amazing societal achievements which we, we don't see today. You know, you're punished for trying to have a family. And it's always said that communists are coming to destroy the family. If you look at the past, it's always very much the opposite. You know, um, so yeah, obviously gay rights were um, excellent after the 1950s. You know, gay people stopped being prosecuted after 1953. 
And by the late 60s, there's um, equal equality. And by the 80s, there's films being made about gay issues and uh, they're very open. And um, it's just complete night and day between the two states. And um, I suppose in that context, we can we can move on to more of the football side of things. But I hope, them, I hope I haven't waffled on too much there because I could do a whole podcast about the founding of the GDR and just how much better it was than West Germany. <laughs> No, it's fantastic, comrade. It's uh, definitely a lot for folk to take in, but definitely worthwhile, eh, especially when we go to cover kind of like the different subjects eh, on GDR football alone. And you're right, eh, we could just spend a, a whole uh, whole episode just talking about the GDR because it's got such a rich history, obviously, before its foundation, eh, during, eh, and, you know, the lingering effects after eh, the fall of the GDR. Eh, it's funny you should mention the Brown Book. It was actually something I was going to touch on, eh, but you beat me to the punchline. Eh, but yes, something that just kind of goes to highlight, uh, goes to highlight the sheer difference uh, between the GDR uh, and West Germany. You know, uh, in in that book, you've got uh, mentions of you know Nazi war criminals uh, reintegrated into the imperialist powers of NATO and being put in charge of the resettlement of Jewish refugees. Uh, it's absolutely mind-boggling stuff, and you know if that's just the surface that's been scratched. Uh, God knows what's under the rest of it and again it's something entirely you can make a, a whole new episode on but yeah just moving on then on to I guess the, the subject of, of football especially when we're, we're going to be touching on you know fan ownership and you know how the game's uh, essentially been taken away from uh, the working men and women uh, of the world uh, just to see Josh if you can give us a wee uh, insight into football in the GDR uh, I guess as a kind of benchmark and you know we can compare and contrast and what that's like compared to what we see across Britain and as well as other European countries yeah, so I always like to start the story of, of East German football with the, the 1974 World Cup in, held in Germany. Um, it's it's the absolute golden year for East German football. First of all, because FC Magdeburg wins the European Cup Winners' Cup, um, the only East German team to ever win any silverware in Europe and actually be properly successful. Uh, but the main event is the uh, the game between West and East Germany. You know, and this was a complete accident that they were drawn together. There's the stories actually of the East German government petitioning uh, FIFA to to get the game scrapped and try and change East Germany because they thought, oh God, you know, we're facing the the two t- at this at this point two time uh, World Cup winners, you know, uh, where we don't stand a chance, you know. Uh, but as fate would have it, um, plucky old East Germany pulled something out of the hat. So I believe in the in, in the seventy seventh minute, I think it was. Um, a certain Jürgen Sparwasser um, catches the ball from a, a beautiful pass, a beautiful long pass. Um, and he's scrambling over these the two West German defenders and he slots that ball um, into the goal. And he does a little uh, little front flip as he scores as well. And the, the East you can actually watch the full game on YouTube with a, with an East German commentator. And the surprise in his voice as he, as, as he says, oh, untorg, you know, and goal. And he's like, what, what has actually just happened in this, the scenes of the... There's very limited East German crowd um, at the time going absolutely mental, waving the little flags. Um, and although West Germany went on to win the tournament, obviously in their own back garden, East Germany won on the day, you know, and that's the major thing. And uh, you'll always hear West German uh, people going on about, oh, well, Germany won that day, you know, we have one united country. Oh, we went on to go win it. Oh, we were resting our players for the rest of the tournament. We're playing the long game. No, 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 not a chance. They knew how important this game was. And it was a game between two economic systems, you know, socialism, socialist football, 
in capitalist football and it was the working class that won on the day so absolutely it's a beautiful story again you can go watch the game and everything and there's it's been adapted in tv shows as well of like what east german spies being in west german homes watching the game and we all know what it feels like you know being um sneaking into an away a home ground whilst your team's playing away and you have to kind of hide your um celebrations when your team score but obviously this is a bit more intense because this is an east german spy having to hide the fact that they've they've just seen their country beat the West Germans in, in a World Cup. So it's a beautiful story, you know, and um, every single player that's involved in that is has amazing biographies as well, but I won't go on too much. Um, but getting into how East German actually East German football functioned and how they kind of bred their success, you can kind of divide it into three distinct areas. Uh, the first one being chaos, because <laughs> it was absolutely mental, the founding of East German football. The second being the golden age, being the the seventies, um, you know the the World Cup game and the 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 SFD Magdeburg uh, European uh, Cup, and then the, the last era of being the dominance of uh, BFC Dynamo, which is um, the so called Stasi team um, of East Germany, and it's actually their birthday today, so you know happy birthday to them. Great. Um, so if we go to like the start, you know, way back, what I've just gone on about. Um, Football starts as a clean state, clean slate, absolutely clean, you know. So this denazification effort went into football as well. So every single team in the in the East German, in the Soviet occupation zone, what becomes the GDR, was banned. So every team that had ever been involved in the third rack football was just gone. It was abolished immediately. And that was done by uh, fans of these teams who had um, not been, uh, been in camps or uh, being in exile um, and you know stayed as fans of these clubs. Actually, when when the war ends, that it's their active decision as a as an anti-fascist fan base to abolish their own teams as well. And in their place, they established um, what's called the BSGs. It's uh, the oh, in English, it's the, the the workplace sport group. I could say it in German, it's pretentious. I won't bore you. It's the workplace sport group, and that's what takes their place. So, um, what happens in the in the West is true to form. <laughs> the the West Germany restores the DFB, which is the the German Football League. Um, so all the organs of that were restored, you know. So the same people who had expelled Jewish players from the game took up their place again in the in the German Football League. So especially teams like Schalke, Hanover, Sachsen uh, Leipzig, Nuremberg, um, all these teams that had won titles joined the Third Reich. They're obviously restored, you know. So a lot of these giants of West German football have very, very dark histories. The big exception being Bayern Munich, actually, to be fair. They were always Hitler always called it the Jewish team and he, he never liked it. Even though there's the meme going around of like their badge but in the forties, obviously being the Eagle and the Swastika, they they are a shining light in the um, of being an anti fascist team, even though I as a Leeds fan, I, I can't stand the bastards, you know. Um but yeah, meanwhile, obviously these teams are being restored in the West, but there was um, a really successful. There was a really successful East German team throwing the Third Reich, and that was uh, Dresdener Sport Club. Um, they're abolished. They, you know, they won it in nineteen forty three, nineteen forty four. Abolished after the war, gone. Um, they initially start as like this very very small club, and then it just goes into irrelevancy, and then it's dissolved. Um, so yeah, in their places, these factory teams are uh, popping up. Um, so. The, the German, so the Football League in East Germany, the, the Soviet occupation zone, actually starts up before the Bundesliga as well. So, you know, immediately as the war ends, there's there's people, working class people, who are obviously rebuilding the country from the ruins. They're immediately going into into football teams and starting up leagues. And 
Um, and this is just the most amateur game possible, you know. Uh, you have some crazy winners at the time, you know, some like teams that were just a bit vanished into obscurity in the later years, winning titles as well and everything. So obviously these teams, they had no links at all, you know, no historical roots. So you see uh, chaos in, in teams being moved around the country as well um, as they kind of come a bit more successful. Um, the worst defender of this is the Army Club. So um, this was Forvert, it was called. It starts off in Leipzig. It then moves to Berlin. It then moves to Frankfurt under order. And there's 13 name changes throughout this period as well, which is just insane. Um, you know, this is because the Army's main base keeps moving across East Germany and the like of that. Um, but yeah, there was this, this scenario where they're trying to do a transfer, which was extremely taboo in East Germany. It barely ever happened. Uh, players actually went, uh, workers in, the, in these factories went on strike whenever a player was trying to get transferred. You know, like you think nowadays, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, Jordan Henderson obviously goes to Saudi Arabia, doesn't he, for this crazy amount of money and a lot of scouts has liked him apparently. I think he's a bit of a, a bit of a twat after everything he's done. <laughs> you know, could you imagine scouts is going on strike because he's leaving? It's, it's it's mental just how linked these football clubs were with their own workplaces. And obviously they were successful as well because the work, the, the, the team, was the workplace, you know, and um, the, the players are from the from the um, the workers, um, and that's the case throughout all of all of East German football, even as it gets a little bit more professionalised. And the principle of being an amateur and being a working class person and being an active worker as well as a football is always preserved throughout East German history up until the final weeks of its existence, where they cave in and they, they follow professionalization reforms, but East Germany was already gone by then at that point. Um, so yeah, there's, there's the first sign of reform of trying to stabilize this crazy situation where team names are changing, that their, their places are changing. You know, there's an example of, um, of a, of a miners team in the, in the uranium mines that I was on about earlier. And um, they're actually, um, they, they want to move to a bigger city in the area to, you know, give it a bit more prestige. And uh, the workers go on strike and say, no, that's absolutely not happening. So the name changes to be a city that's miles and miles away from the workplace, but the team still plays in this tiny little village in um, in the mountains and they're really successful. But yeah, so the first reform starts in 1953, where you have the the first established sport clubs. And this was um, the main one being Dynamo Dresden, who was, um, who was a team of the people's police at the time as well. So every player in Dynamo Dresden was also a serving police officer in East Germany. And this network encompassed sport, um, sport clubs for every kind of sport imaginable, so like shooting, rowing, uh, track and field, jumping, athletics, um, and football as well. And, you know, there's um, ice hockey as well. There's, um, there's a Dynamo ice hockey team, which is um, it's got its own little interesting history. You know, they end up having an, uh, an ice hockey league where there's only two teams and they just play each other about 40 times. <laughs> it's just absolutely mental. But, yeah, so... Um, you start to see teams growing and getting more resources put into them and allowing more people in these workplaces to access more wide varieties of sport, which we'll get into a bit later on. And the um, the next um, major reform comes in 1966, um, which kind of kickstarts the uh, the next era of the golden era of East German football. So um, there's a bit more of a focus on something called Leistung sport, which is like success sport. So um, trying to actually do well, you know, um, on the international stage as well and try and bring a bit of prestige to, to East Germany. So um, they promote some of these BSG's factory clubs into actual dedicated football clubs, you know, um, where they would get 
Um, they're all state-owned clubs of these, and they're sponsored by local industry, so they still have that connection to the workplace, but they get state funding, they get, um, you know, the trade unions are really involved in uh, providing resources for them, and these clubs are Union Berlin, which is my personal team in, in Germany. I used to live near there. Uh, Magdeburg, Hansa Rostock, Karl Marchstadt, Local Leipzig, Kalsajina, BSC Dynamo, Hallescher FC, and Vorwärts Berlin. So these are all linked to it. So Union Berlin, my team, was founded by um, an SED party um, member. And it was also it was sponsored by the trade unions. And everybody who plays for Union Berlin uh, worked in the, um, the steelworks in Berlin as well. Uh, Magdeburg, they uh, all their players worked in the Ernst Thälmann um, steel factory, the steel plant. Hansa Rostock, everyone in there worked in the harbours and shipping. Uh, local Leipzig, locomotive Leipzig, they all work on the railways. Kalzaschina, they work in optics. You know, it's the, the links. Even though they've tried to professionalise these football clubs, are still really strong with the workplaces. This isn't abolishing that connection. It's making it stronger and making sure that these factory teams have the potential to succeed internationally. So this is this kind of period after 1966 is where you see the greatest range of competition and success. Uh, the most amount of teams are winning it, uh, but mainly Dynamo Dresden, that team of the People's Police, and Magdeburg um, are, are benefiting the most out of this. And um, as is shown by Magdeburg, obviously winning the European Cup Winners' Cup. And Sparwasser, who scored that goal against West Germany, is a Magdeburg player. He's born in Magdeburg. He works in in the factory, and he, he accomplishes his massive achievement. Um, and then we go into the kind of last era, where um, the rise of BFC Dynamo. Um, this is the team of the Stasi, supposedly. It's sponsored by Eric Milka, and the guy I was on about earlier who shot police officers and um, was a massive communist, obviously, um, but also a bit dodgy towards the end as well. Um, so this in this time after 1979. Uh, they win the the Oberliga, the the league title, ten years in a row, um, which was unprecedented in East German football because of that kind of competitive spirit and the chaos of it all. Um, so there's a lot of whispers of foul play going on at this time. You know, talk about the Stasi rigging the games and threatening referees with um, with arrest and the families being expelled if the if they didn't give a penalty to to BFC and stuff like that. And people have scoured the archives, people have interviewed these referees and have come to the conclusion that it's total bollocks. Um, BFC just had a really successful youth system, which was um, a system that was um, across the Dynamo, so Dynamo Dressing used it as well. Um, and that's what we'll talk about later, about this kind of sporting culture in, in East Germany. But they just had an incredible youth system um, of scouting and um drawing in talent and it was actually a system that's been copied by most of Western football as well. So whilst on the one hand they're maligning it as a as a crooked system of uh as 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 the Stasi club, they're also copying their tactics in the other as well. So it can't be that bad, you know. And again, my team on your Berlin hates this club and um but you gotta be honest about it, you know, you can't be um you gotta put that aside a little bit. Um Eric Milker as well was also just a massive football fan. Um he attended every single home game for BSC Dynamo. He was always seen in the stands and um, obviously he's running the the biggest security apparatus in Germany at the time and he's still coming to football games, um, which is just a, a fun little fact. You know, the German system succeeded because a lot of these working class um, leaders of the state love football. You know, it's a working class game at the end of the day. 
um, and they're all from that background, so they want to see their socialist state succeed in it, and, uh, and they allocate so many resources towards it, even though internationally East Germany doesn't do very well compared to the West, obviously. But when you look at it per population, you know, uh, East Germany had the success rate of like England and Italy and stuff, you know, when you adjust it to that, uh, people forget that it's still this tiny little country next to a very massive Western back neighbor with all these billions of pounds that have gone into funding it. So yeah, um, even in this last 10 years, there's, um, you know, there's still development in East Germany um, of rearing talent, um, of keeping that, tra- you know, they always talk about it being crooked, but there was no transfers between the big clubs. Um, that just didn't happen. You know, they called it delegations. The only time that players like swap team was when they were really young. You know, it's kind of like when you get called up to your national team now, you know, you can't, you can't change after that. But when you're under 18, you can swap between Ireland and England is obviously the big one, you know, like a lot of Irish talent going over to England and like that. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was very much a purer kind of football. Again, it's one that was uh, involved working class people at every single level. And um, yeah, it was, like I say, a much purer kind of game and it yielded a successful one if it's West Germany for the, the only time. Aye, a lot of folks seem to think Scottish football is uh, most chaotic, but I think GDR takes <laughs> takes the cake there. Uh, but no, it definitely has a, a really rich history, you know, and a lot of the stuff you've touched on there we'll, we'll be able to dive into uh, later on in the show. As we see uh, across here in Britain, you know, the kind of his- history has always been, you know, I guess played played by private capital, uh, especially in the, the development of, of clubs more so we see down in, in England, the Premier League, and again, it's something we'll come on to discuss about. You know, the the idea of these super leagues, the, this professionalisation that's uh, going going even uh, further beyond that uh, to the full marketisation of of football uh, as a whole. So, thanks for that, Josh. That was superb, and you know, we've touched kind of on uh, fan ownership uh, earlier. So it was just to see it again if. Uh, Josh, and I'm sure you can probably talk in this as well, Gary, uh, relating the case to, to Britain. But uh, Josh, if you can start us off then, just kind of see, you know, what was fan ownership like in the, the GDR? If, you know, was it something that existed or was the, you know, the state support, you know, uh, with the dictatorship of the proletariat uh, being enforced, you know, uh, something that wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, eyed upon? Or uh, can you give us a wee insight into that? Yeah, yeah. So, so like I say, obviously, the vast majority of football clubs um, in the East German pyramid from the top to bottom are these, these factory um, sport groups, you know, like, like I said earlier. So um, it's, it's direct. It's, it's just people in their workplace finding talent and building a team together. And, you know, and they, these were represented all the way up to the top division. So the biggest of these was um, Saxon Rings Fickau, which was the, the team that built the, the famous Trabant, you know, the East German car, they had a football team and um, and they did really well. I think they actually played Celtic as well in, in Europe a couple of times. So there's a there's, there's a link there as well. But yeah, so in the in these clubs, uh, facilities were managed by um, the local trade union. Uh, trade union officers made sure that there were resources put into the factory so that workers could um, take time off of work and um, and practice sport, whatever sport that may be. Um, you know. And the work, the workers would come out and see their team play. And if they weren't happy with the team, they would, would you know, they'll berate them on shift and stuff like that because that connection was just so close. But yeah, even in these these clubs that are the the professional, not professional, but you know, these success teams, 
the established football club, you know, the Union Berlins and the uh, the Dynamo Dresdens of the world and that, the ones that are owned by the state, uh, they're still sponsored by these workplaces. So again, the players are still working in um, working in the factories or uh, as police officers. And um, although there's that kind of, you know, there's a state ownership of it, it's still very similar to these factory um, sport groups of, you know, being from the working class. And um, if something wasn't right, um, instead of just, you know, berating them on shift they would actually like send out letters to the state they were called eingarben they were um and by law they had to that anybody who received one anyone could receive one from like a foreman a factory foreman up to the leaders of the state they legally had to reply within i think it was two weeks they had to reply to it so you know you, you could complain to eric honecker about like a leaky roof or something like that but it might not be relevant you know um so yeah they, they would just address these these concerns to to the state instead, and then that means they're directly accountable, and they they, they have to be seen to have they have to reply in two weeks and actively act on it within four weeks. So, you know, um, even with state ownership of, of these clubs and kind of you know not being this pure, almost kind of anarchistic spirit of creating these random sports teams out of nowhere, um, the working class connection is still really strong, and they're still actively involved in the running of the football club. So, yeah, it is a it's a system that's just. Um, it's night and day to what we see today, you know, where we obviously have state ownership in um, in England, in the Premier League. And it's, you know, obviously look at Saudi Arabia and Newcastle, you know, how many Geordies are able to influence the policies of the Saudi state when they go onto the terraces? It's it's very, very few. Yeah, cheers, Cormie. Then I, I love the idea of uh, a poor uh, East German footballer uh, getting an absolute slagging in his work for missing a sitter than having to talk to his union net because he's getting bullied for it. <laughs> It's certainly a funny image. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, Gary, just over to you then. Obviously, kind of talking about fan ownership, a lot of us in, in Britain obviously have that kind of a relatively, I guess, small idea of fan ownership. It's not something that's, you know, massively common, more so with, uh, I guess, the the big name clubs who would take the limelight in the in the Premier League, uh, you know, and obviously with the likes of Celtic and Rangers usually dominating the headlines in Scotland, you know, fan ownership isn't something that's uh, continuously shouted about, uh, and obviously a result of bourgeois media outlets, you know, it's not something that's uh, championed or advertised as well, especially its benefits. But it was just to see, Gary, if you can give us a wee insight into kind of uh, fan ownership in, in Britain today, even if it's just in uh, the likes of Scotland. Oh, where do you go for here, man? I, I need a sponge to soak up all that ball knowledge for Josh there in history, man. It's incredible. Um, no, that was incredible, Josh. But uh, regarding Britain, I would say... I, I'd say my expertise more in Scotland, uh, per se, but if you look at England uh, as a whole, and even Wales, um, you know, in recent times you've saw the Hollywood uh, buyout of Wrexham, who was a fan-owned club uh, for many years, um, you know, and they've traded their kind of community ownership for the big bucks. You know, it's paying off short-term, um, whether it seems to... If it seems to go the full length, it's yet to be seen. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, when you put your you put your trust and your ownership into private private owners for a faraway land, um, you know, you know how it turns out half the time. Um, and that's why they like to say a couple of teams in Scotland uh, took fan ownership themselves, particularly my home club Motherwell, and 
we went through, uh, you know, financial turmoil uh, in the early 2000s, went into administration for, you know, a, uh, for a season, uh, faced relegation, etc. Um, yeah, and then, you know, we, we soldiered on for another, I think, 15, over 15 years, the same owner. Then the owner, John Boyle, handed, well, came up with the idea to hand the the shares to the fans, uh, but the fans took up that offer, but we didn't have the finances here, so we managed to get a loan from a you know a, a Canadian businessman uh, who took ownership at the time, but it was an interest-free loan for five years, I believe. But I think in the space of like three years, it just gave us it uh, after, I think, we'd paid, I can't remember, just about the majority of the, the money in. Uh, and then eventually it was handed over to the, uh, the fans. Uh, so Motherwell were the first first owned fan owned club in Scotland. Uh, that was uh, in the formation of the year 2016. Uh, yeah, and we've seen kind of short successes after that. You know, we get the Cup of Cup finals, European football, uh, and then, you know, it's just. It went went pretty well, but you know you have your ups and downs as a, a middle old club. You know you can get your, you know your two days in Europe, or you can uh, be fighting in the basement battle. But at the end of the day, the club is in the fans' hands, uh, and yeah, I've seen good people uh, uh, stepping into the Welsh society. Uh, one being Sean Bailey, who's such a trade union organizer for GMB. Uh, you know, he was one of the main kind of. Uh, organisers within the, the stand and stuff like that, alongside Derek Watson to bring in, uh, you know, a bit of, a bit of atmosphere, I suppose, a bit of ultra scene that they'd seen in Europe uh, when I'm again. Uh, so, yeah, and then moving on for there, uh, you've got the likes of St Martin, um, their rivals Morton, both uh, fan-owned clubs. Uh, well, she got part of Thistle recently. Um, and but the biggest I would say is probably Hearts that are fan owned in Britain, uh, managed to get their uh, the fan ownership, uh, and at the Hearts Foundation. So, yeah, I would say Scotland is paving a way, I suppose, uh, in fan ownership in Britain. But like you said, Nathan, you, do, you don't get to see the same gratification or for these fans taking initiative and putting in their democratic will, I suppose, and the powers into the football club as well as society. During COVID, Motherwell, when we had the COVID season, there was no uh, supporters allowed to come to the stadium. But as the Welsh Society decided they would give the, the free season tickets for the for the following season. Uh, and, you know, that didn't get done in the likes of the bigger clubs in Scotland or even in England, etc., uh, where Motherwell would be scraping for money. But, you know, the fans put their money in their pockets at that time and they do every every month, uh, like I do myself. So, yeah, it's just about uh, showing a bit of respect between the, the club and the fans, uh, whereas in the past, you know, the, the club could have been dead and buried. Uh, but we kind of secure funding, uh, a constant stream of money coming in and just no kind of stupid, stupid plans by rogue, rogue owners. Then the, these clubs are in safe places uh, as long as they stick to their uh, morals and uh, good club traditions, I believe. 
Yeah, perfect, Gary. Uh, and yeah, I think fan ownership and you know, uh, and the Catalyst Society is always going to be be difficult. It's always going to be an uphill battle. You know, it's uh, just another embodiment of you know uh, the workers against private capital. It's that that fight. You know, if uh, clubs have, have got the the money uh, and you know the backing of wealthy investors and board members, then they're always going to you know storm ahead. And you know they've they've got plenty of, of tricks to you know keep themselves. Uh, well endowed uh, with our wallets uh, you know fans really do have to scrape by and, and you know when we get to what we've had in Britain the, the so-called cost of living crisis or as we know it to be the cost of capitalism you know it's, it's workers who are hit the most and you know uh, as these these close calls these scrapes where fans really have to to dig in uh, and give what they can almost everything folk making really really tough tough choices but they do it for the love of, you know, the game, their club, and most importantly, their community that's centred around it. You know, it becomes more and more difficult, uh, especially here, here in Britain, where, where so many people, uh, so many workers are feel isolated, isolated from their own communities. And, you know, that only puts a, a further strain uh, in the battle for the likes of fan ownership as well. Big, big clubs will we'll always try to, I guess, uh, synthesise uh, some kind of synthetic form of, of community. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily to say that you know, fans who take part in that, you know, it's not a community in itself, but it's certainly how it's been formed has been based off, not for the interests of the, the workers within that community, but what will work best for the board members, uh, you know, the investors, you know, a wee foundation, is that a cheeky wee tax write-off that they can use? Perfect, that's a bonus is going up uh, for the board members, uh, you know, and, you know, we've seen in, in Scotland, uh, you know, the history of rogue uh, financial investors and owners, you know, uh, I'll know, I'll know, show my colours as being a Celtic fan too much, but I will mention obviously the Rangers uh, and then leave it at that. <laughs> but no, it's definitely an uphill battle, you know. And I guess uh, moving on from this, you know, I've, I've kind of touched on there the sense of isolation from community. I think that kind of leads us on to from what we've talked about in the GDR, from factories where we've had footballers, you know, living, working uh, and then playing in their, their clubs. Now we see in the modern game, especially in, in really massive clubs, players who are isolated from their community. They're, they're not really uh, within the cities uh, that their clubs play in. The only time they're really out is for a photo op, things like that. Uh, you know, and now they live in the mansions. They're, they're well above, you know, uh, where the workers live. Uh, so it was just to see, you know, Gary, if this is something you want to, to lead us off in, you know, where we find football superstars now. Uh, compared to you know how they how they've existed within you know the GDR and you know the Soviet Union and that you know what can affect that has in the broader sense of maintaining that I guess uh, bourgeois narrative of individualism. Aye, uh, where to go for this? Uh, I don't notice it in my club as much, but you know, uh, you know the guys are on very decent wages at the end of the day. You know, a grand to two grand a week uh, to take home, but when you look at the likes of Josh was mentioned earlier there. Um, like Jordan Henderson, you know, throwing his, uh, you know, throwing all his orals out the window. We, you know, moving to Saudi Arabia where they have horrendous LGBT laws and rights for people there. You know, just selling their selling their souls for the for the cash, and also particularly in the Barcelona stuff recently. You know, so much tax evasion uh, from Messi's family, uh, Mascherano, etc. These are icons I suppose and idols sell a lot of young footballing fans but the, the greed there is just uh, obscene uh, to be fair. Going back into the past I suppose um, when you look at 
one of our past members, uh, Jackie McNamara Senior. Uh, you know, it's a, a real tongue twister there. <laughs> but um, yeah, one of our party members back in the day, Celtic and uh, Hibernian, I believe, played for. Um, you know, he was a shop steward at the same time in the Clyde Shipyards. He was out there on a, a Saturday or even during the week, putting the daily, I think it was a daily work at the time. Uh, I, you know, so it just shows the, the contrast for <laughs> Jackie McNamara Senior to, you know, <laughs> Mascarano or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, the contrast there is uh, unreal. But even if you look at Javier Zanetti, um, you know, using his profile as a an Milan player, uh, I believe he was a Champions League winner as well, using that profile and his wealth and I knowledge, I suppose, to, to help out with the Zapatistas and setting out uh, grassroots programmes in Mexico. But yeah, stuff like that is pretty much unseen or unheard of anyway, it doesn't get the same kind of um, same kind of limelight uh, as you know people earning the, the big big money within uh, world football um, that they get especially. But I think what we can take from it is that football has drastically changed, uh, particularly in what worldwide football anyway, in uh, comparison to what the Eastern Bloc offered, uh, where uh, you know these countries sadly uh, fell. And uh, these were worker states, you know, as Josh was saying, many of them were uh, workers from a factory within an army battalion moving about and they were challenging within international competitions, uh, you know, getting, you know, workers' wages. And, you know, whereas you see today it's the same, same clubs challenging for everything. Uh, for Man-, Man City, you know, pretty much nothing club for decades uh, and now just, you know, owned by a, UE oil baron at the end of the day. Um, that doesn't doesn't put much into the ownership of fans, I suppose. You know that hasn't really orchestrated much community unification, I suppose. Because at the end of the day, they still have the atmosphere still pretty hollow, uh, and the stands still remain slightly empty at the end of the day. So I. It's just a, a vanity project for the likes of these uh, big owners. Um, and, yeah, it's something we do want to see as supporters, uh, and particularly now that we have uh, fan ownership in my club and other clubs in Scotland, uh, even certain clubs in England as well, like Wimbledon, what happened to them in the past with MK Dons taking over their club, uh, but the fans rose up and established their own. And slowly but surely, they're coming back up the leagues, still bouncing, bouncing back up and down. But, you know, at least the fans have the, the final say in the proceedings there still. Yeah, Josh, you get anything you want to add on to that? No, nah, yeah, yeah, you've uh, hit the nail on the head there. Just obviously this absolute disconnect with, with modern players, you know. I mean, like if you see a football in the streets these days, like you've seen, you know, it's the second coming of Jesus or something. Do you know what I mean? Like the amount of people that are swarming over them, like the, these gods, but it's like they're, they're just people like us. And... Even in England, you know, like, well, back in the, the 70s and the 80s, you know, like, there were, it wasn't like it is today. You know, like they were still a lot more approachable and a lot, you know, a lot closer to how, how they had it in, in the East, you know, because football was obviously an amateur sport for so long. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just it's just depressing to see this idealisation of players and compared to how it used to be. You know, you look at the the, the Magdeburg team that, that, again, won the European Cup Winners' Cup. 
you know, um, they're they're all local lads. They're all from the, this this tiny little area around Magdeburg, and it's uh, the only similarity is is with Selic, who obviously won in nineteen sixty seven with quite a local team. Um, you know, Magdeburg had a very similar achievement. All all factory workers, average age twenty three. You know, and these were people that you could just see on shift and were often in the bars after, you know, after a shift or after training or something like that. You know, they'll cycle to work and it's, you know, rather than being in a sports car or anything like that, it's, it's night and day, you know. And obviously these people as well, they, they did get paid a bit more, you know, but it wasn't astronomical. It was like a small percentage added on top as well for a recognition of effort. And, you know, a lot of people weren't living in mansions. You know, the best that someone could get was like a detached house. But like you know, that was still like two up, two, two up, two down. It might be like surrounded by a couple of trees rather than being in a um, in a massive apartment block for you know. And this was for the most successful. The vast majority would have just stayed in the factory barracks, you know, in another workers' village around massive, um, uh, massive workplace and the like of that. It's um, yeah, it's 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 disparaging to see this uh, this disconnect, you know. But obviously, there is there is hope in England um, and obviously Scotland as well. Scotland has definitely seems to be leading the way on it. Far more to be done because obviously you can't reconcile this with the capital system, which is obviously so intent on on commodifying everything and um, selling out to, to to states. You know, Germany, modern Germany, has tried to cast the balance of fifty plus one, but even then, that's still a compromise. You know, um, Bayern, Bayern Munich, who have won for the last eleven years now, um, doing the exact things that everyone accuses BFC Dynamo of doing. You know, of poaching players from the the smaller teams and being sponsored by these massive companies that were involved in the Holocaust and stuff like that. You know, it's, um, you know, so even, even fan ownership in Germany is being exploited, especially with the rise of the Red Bull network as well. You know, looking at um, their official name is grass ball sport Leipzig rather than Red Bull Leipzig because of German licensing laws. But, you know, they've arisen from a, a tiny little team a place called Merkenstadt, which is a tiny little village outside of Leipzig. And they've become one of the most successful teams in German football by explicitly breaking the rules, you know. Um, so it shows that even where we have these concessions within football, even in this seemingly pure system of modern German football, a 50 plus one, which so many English fans aspire to, it can be it can be snapped like that whenever, you know, a significant amount of money is involved and principles can be broken, mainly by the organisation which help to expel Jewish players from the German game in the 30s. So, you know, there's parallels there, material conditions of people like you so and the like of that. But, but yeah, um, football is broken. We all know that. Yeah, absolutely spot on from both of you. Uh, you have hit the nail right in the head. And, you know, uh, within a capitalist society, it's obviously going to be a lot more easier, you know, to play on the sense of individualism. You know, we see it with with young players, especially. You know, I, I speak as you know, a former you know youth football coach. Lots of young players are just driven uh, for the the lifestyles, obviously, that are uh, showcased uh, with top flight football. You know, it's uh, this sentiment of rising out of your class rather than with it. You know, if you're a footballer, uh, you've not got the uh, brand spank new Range Rover, the big mansion, the boot deal, everything else like that, then, you know, apparently you've not made it. 
the commodification of football has essentially stripped away the dignity and the respect that trophies, medals and league table positions, you know, bring in the, and the joy that brings the fans. Uh, that's we're seeing, especially, you know, uh, in Britain, but, you know, across numerous capitalist uh, nations, you know, that's that's second. Uh, you know, it's not about the fans' enjoyment. It's about, you know, uh, maintaining the flow of private capital. And I guess moving on, you know, one of my sort of favourite models from the GDR, everyone, everywhere, sports once a week. Uh, I'm a mad uh, fitness fanatic. I, I just think, uh, especially, you know, as socialists, as, as communists, as we know, you know, building physical education isn't just obviously good for your own physical health, but, you know, the sense of uh, belonging it can, it can bring, you know, whether that's in a football team, uh, ice hockey, volleyball, you name it. Uh, it really brings, you know, folks together and breeds success, from that early age, uh, within Britain, you know, uh, especially here in Scotland with uh, severe council cuts, you know, we're seeing millions, millions and millions of pounds uh, cut from local councils across uh, Lanarkshire, uh, you know, threats to sports centres, leisure centres, uh, facing that where I live as well, uh, all across Glasgow, uh, just everywhere, and obviously down in England as well, it's the, the exact same story, you know, and how can we you know, hope to breed success, breed, you know, physical fitness of our young people uh, if we're, we're, we're closing these facilities and, you know, these cuts are being made by, you know, the governments in Westminster uh, and in Holyrood. So it's just to kind of touch on, you know, the, the absolute importance uh, for access to these sports facilities, classes, clubs, even if they're not just football, the importance for that and, you know, why it's, you know, needed for young people and everybody as well, Josh. Is that something you want to touch in on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, likewise. Just, just despair. Obviously, the the, the situation in, in the north of England. You know, we've seen the worst of uh, privatisation, and uh, you know, likewise, we've we've lost all our community centres, and um, you know, there's there's nothing for young people to do anymore. You know, um, it's it's disparaging. But to get back to the to the GDR, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I think, I think the phrase um, everyone everywhere sport once a week is, is an incredible one. Um, it's one that we should all carry into our, into our lives today, no matter the system that we live in. Um, and that quote comes from um, one of the first leaders of East Germany, Walter Ulbricht, um, who I've already mentioned before, you know, Carpenter and um, spent time in the Soviet Union. Um, he was massively into sports, you know, um, he was a, an avid ice skater. He skied. He did volleyball, table tennis. Um, and whenever he would go on these visits, uh, you know, like public visits to places, he would he would always join in his sport with with the ordinary people, whether that be in schools or factories or or sport clubs. You know, he was um, he was massively into it, and he was one of the um, you know, and it's probably why East German uh, football and sport was was so massive because a lot of the government were were avidly into it themselves as well, and they were absolutely pushing for it. So yeah, obviously one of them, um, you know, the GDR is it styled itself as the sport nation. Um, and this can be seen in the Olympics where it had absolutely massive success. Uh, they won 590 medals and 192 of those were gold, um, which, is you know, it's, it had far outstripped the West in, in that way. Um, a lot of those were in football, actually, because, you know, the East German football teams being made of pure amateurs, they could compete in the Olympics. So, they, uh, they swept up a lot of medals there where West German footballers may not have been able to play. Um, yeah, obviously a lot of this is put down to doping um, in the modern um, image of East Germany. And yeah, there was a state doping programme for, for certain athletes and there was a lot of money put into it to try and 
to get everything out of it. But you know, this was the the sixties, seventies, eighties, and you know, name you can name so many Western athletes who are also doped up to the high, you know, up to their eyeballs. You know, it's a it's a sad sad reflection of the time, but. That doesn't mean that every single East German's um, success comes from drugs. It's, it's, you know, it's bonkers to say that, and not every, you know, to say that every single GDR athlete was doped is, is bonkers as well. You know, like one of the the greatest swimmers of all time was a guy called Roland Matters, and he he never doped once. You know, and he's still admired by uh, by swimmers today. Um, there's um, a woman called uh, Heike Drexler who um, who who was the only is the only woman to have won uh, two gold medals consecutively in, in long jump in two Olympics. So, you know, massive. This was done after, just shortly after the wall fell down. Um, she was quite young during East Germany. But even when she was young, you know, as a sportswoman, uh, she was active in the Free German Youth, you know, the um, the socialist youth organisation for, for East Germany. And she was actually elected to the, the East German Parliament, the Volkskammer, in 1984 as a teenager. So it shows, obviously, the respect that East Germany had for... Um, for athletes and how a lot of these athletes were also very proud socialists and working class people. You know, the system was so successful. Obviously, when the wall comes down, the first thing to go are all these sport trainers who have been poached by the West and, and you know, sold over for for cash, which is um, outrageous. But yeah, a lot of this success doesn't come from doping. It comes from the amazing sport system that East Germany had. So sport was incredibly easily accessible. Anybody could uh, had access to it. So for, if you're a child, it was... 20p, 20 fennigs to join a sport club. If you're an adult, it's uh, one mark 30. Um, and there were 11,000 amateur sport clubs across a very small country. And a lot of these were actually free as well. You know, you didn't have to pay for every single one of them. A lot of them were volunteers in workplaces, in schools and the like of that. Um, completely free. But um, for more organised sport, there was um, something called the DTSB, which was the German Gymnastics and Sport Federation. So you would pay like an annual membership. I think it was about 10 to 15 marks a year. And you just had unlimited access to all sports facilities throughout the country. And this ranged from every single sport going from sailing to chess, you know, like whatever you were set on, you could do. And uh, these were um, provided in special facilities, but also in your workplaces. So, you know, like the in the break rooms, there were, you know, there were ping pong, ping pong tables. And, you know, a lot of socialist countries are absolutely mad for the ping pong i don't know why but they, they love it you know but yeah like yeah, even if you're just in a small place you at least have that but obviously the bigger works they had uh football fields and you know like you know volleyball and all the, all the sports you could possibly do um alongside like you know health clinics and uh kindergartens for your for your children and the like of that you know these were community hubs you know, especially because you're spending most of your life in these places you want to be able to at least get a bit of enjoyment out of them um, so yeah, the DTSB it had it had four million members, nearly four million members by the fall of the wall, which is about twenty percent of the population. You know, these were people that were paying this fee to have access to all these crazy sports, and many, many, many more uh, were members of just a local sport club and practicing their own. You know, um, so yeah, it joined. Like I say, a lot of these were in the workplace, and you you're allowed to take breaks from your from your shift to go and exercise and, and do sport. You know, it's absolutely unthinkable now. And there's lots of stories of people who go from the east to the west and they, uh, you know, after the walls come down and, you know, reunification happens and they're absolutely gobsmacked that they can't just stop mid-shift and just like go play a bit of basketball or something like that. They're absolutely gobsmacked, you know, and they're, they're, they're talking to union reps in, in the west and it's like, yeah, this is how it's always been. And um, grass isn't always green on the other side, as they say. 
But yeah, so if, if even if you had sport injuries as well, uh, whilst you're doing that, you know, they were treated exactly the same as workplace accidents and you were given the same amount of support. So like, you know, if you go to work today and you've, you've knackered your ankle playing football, you'll probably still be expected to turn up and you probably won't get sick paid for it. You know what I mean? But, um, they're a lot tighter than that. So um, yeah, all these facilities, um, the support, it was all managed through trade unions as well. So union rep was also important for, for chasing up and sorting the facilities out. A lot of these um, complaints that I were on about earlier, you know, a lot of them were about sport facilities, um, lack of them, um, not, you know, not good enough. And like I say, they have to be acted on within four weeks. And, you know, and there's, there's countless stories from um, former East Germans who were, you know, genuinely received so much from this system as well. And, um, you know, that's why in, in modern Germany today, there's this uh, stereotype of East Germans being moaners because they would always ask for things and they would always get them because... You know, they had this complaining culture and it yielded results. You know, if it's not good enough, you're going to ask for more. And it's absolutely right. That's something that's knocked out of us in capitalist society today. You're taught to, to keep your head down and put up a show up, you know what I mean? Um, but yeah, there were other sports groups as well. The other one was the GST, the Society for Sport and Technology. This was slightly more. Uh, you'd pay about 15 to 20 marks a year. And, uh, and for that, you would have access to motorsports, shooting, um, amateur aviation, you know what I mean, like, imagine paying this tiny amount of money, and boom, you can like be an F one driver, something like that. You know, it's it's absolutely unthinkable today. And um, again, like another thing, F one, you know, it's all rich kids and the like of that. You know, that's that's absolutely not a working class sport whatsoever anymore. You know, there's a few shining lights in there, but it's it's just a rich boys game. You know, and this um, this group of society of sport and technology had about six hundred thousand members. Um, a lot of them were, were young as well. Um, it's always derided as being training and militarization of society and trying to get everyone into the army, but you know, it's it, it's ridiculous. You know, these were these were offering young people in schools real opportunities to do sports that you just don't have access to today in whatever mode, and especially not for 15 to 20 quid a year. You know, you're paying about I think I pay about 25 quid a month for my gym membership, and it's like <laughs> then that's that's a pure gym, you know. So we know what, what comes with that, you know. And I'm definitely not flying planes for that much, although I'd absolutely love to. Um, but yeah, sport education was absolutely crucial in East Germany. So um, it was mandatory to have at least two hours of sport um, from every level of education right up to university. Um, and that's not something you see now. You know, if you're in uni, there's no obligation to do sport. You know, it's something that's put upon you um, to do yourself and obviously not encouraged. And, um, you know, if you if you're a gifted kid as well, uh, they had special sports schools you go to for absolutely free, just as a normal part of the education system. Um, you know, you're divided up into like intellectual work, sport work, manual work, you know, where you're going to learn from local workplaces. But yeah, there's a dedicated part of the school system for, for gifted kids. And it, that that's a massive part of the reason why East Germany had this success is because they, they cultivated it from, from day one. It was a massive part of daily life, you know, and uh, and the support was there to back it up as well. It's not like us nowadays where we're seeing um, community centres and, um, you know, places to, to just have fun, just being scrapped left, right and centre through budget cuts, you know. Um, you know, it, it was so crucial in, in East Germany anyway that they had like socialist competition between different groups as well, all these mass organisations from the Free German Youth to the trade unions and, um, the the culture league and the women's league, you know, they're all having amateur football tournaments at like sports days, and there was an annual family sports day as well, where families would complete compete amongst each other, uh, brigades, you know, like little groups of colleagues at work that were 
you know, you would like go to the cinema with and stuff and like eat out with, you know, they had um, competition within their workplace as well outside of the major football team. Um, it was just such an absolutely crucial part of life. And, you know, it's a little fact as well, you know, like when the GDR started making stamps, like the third stamp set was about sports, you know, like before like picture the Marx and Lenin and stuff, you know, it was people skiing. So it's so intrinsic to the socialist identity, you know, it's, um, and there was so much backing for it that you just can't imagine today, you know? Yeah, that's perfect, Josh. Thanks for that. Uh, and I, it's just such a stark comparison between what we're seeing in Britain and now compared to the GDR and indeed, you know, the whole USSR, the fact here in Britain we've got groups, sports clubs, football clubs, whatever, fighting uh, for venues as a result of these kind of council cuts compared to we're seeing the GDR where sports was in abundance and at a cheap price too. I'm looking at the, the history of a sport in the GDR with, with heavy jealousy. It's it's so important that we, we do have these sports clubs and and all sorts of capacities, especially for the kind of culture that it breeds that we've talked about. And, you know, I guess that kind of leads us on when we're talking about, you know, both playing football, you know, watching football, uh, sport in general as well, uh, as the, the fan scenes that we've seen, uh, specifically the anti-fascist fan scenes that we've seen, uh, you know, across Europe, uh, you know, Scotland, England, Wales, uh, and Ireland as well. So, Gary, it was just to see if you, you want to come in on this and maybe talk about, you know, maybe some of the past uh, and present uh, anti-fascist fan scenes that we have. Yes, so regarding the past, and the, the 70s and, well, the 80s also was, uh, we faced like a, a real issue regarding the National Front in terms of getting, uh, you know, entrenching ourselves within our terraces, uh, causing, you know, racial kind of... <sighs> racial backlash between supporters um, just causing havoc, I suppose. Um, and then other kind of groups formed in opposition to that. Um, the one in my head, just off the top of my head then, was uh, Red Action. Uh, and, you know, and what they did was, um, you know, they got in the terraces alongside, alongside those uh, supporters as well and fought them within their own terraces or out in the streets. Um, you know, and just combating that kind of narrative that it was only uh, what the National Front were saying, uh, it was only the white man's game within the country, you know, they would be booing, uh, you know, the likes of Paul Ince and stuff like that. Um, John Barnes, uh, you know, he was hated within the England camp just, just for being black and um, one of the greatest English players uh, I think it's ever been. Uh, probably most technical one of the most technical players behind, you know, Gaza, probably say. Uh for his sins. Uh, good player. Just just a an absolute rocket. Um but, but yeah, so I thought it was pretty good to see that. And I think from my personal time in anti fascist kind of work within football, uh probably not in not in the last couple of years, but a couple of years before, maybe just before COVID. Uh, there was kind of the formation of the group. Um, I, f- I believe it was the DFLA first. Um, so I, they, them and the FLA, they formed, I believe, um, on the basis of just after the terrorist attacks, I believe, in Manchester and uh, and after the Lee Rugby kind of stuff. They formed and they were targeting Muslims at football games within the streets. Um, and then that's when the formation of the football ads and lasses against fascism um, 
you know, cropped up. And that was something, uh, you know, it was done in England, done in Scotland. Um, and, you know, it was a useful tool at the time, I believe. Um, you know, we won some good battles there in the terraces, uh, particularly in England. Uh, I think it was like Birmingham, stuff like that. It was uh, quite good uh, fan initiatives there, you know, where the Jamaican flag and, you know, I think it was even the Union Jack together and stuff like that in solidarity uh, for, you know, British, British white and British black workers coming together and football fans together. And I can remember my time uh, up in Scotland, there was a Scottish Defence League demo in Edinburgh where, um, you know, it was one of the main actions football lads and lasses against fascism were taking. You know, we met up and it was supporters from all teams in Scotland, Motherwell, Celtic, Hearts, Rangers, uh, etc. Hibs and all that. Uh, where we met up, discussed kind of like a plan of work, and what to do and an action point. And then one of the main things was just to blend ourselves in alongside the fascists, uh, which was uh, pretty funny. We just stood alongside them at, <laughs> at uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh Waverley and we just pushed them out from behind. Uh, and the, and the <laughs> SEL didn't know what was going on. Uh, and it was pretty funny when we left that. Uh, we managed to get them away and we were leaving that side of the packet, uh, that side of the demo to go to the, you know, the left side. We were getting shouted at, you, fa uh, you fascist bastards, get away from us. <laughs> so, uh, and we had to plead our innocence to the fact we'd actually, you know, give the, <laughs> give the, uh, the opposition a few, a few Glasgow kisses uh, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and we had to hand over a leaflet to say, by the way, as I said, we are one of them. Uh, so it was pretty funny, but particularly in uh, those kind of anti-racism demos, you know, you get your liberal left types uh, on the on the left side, and you know they didn't. They called us. Uh, they says, "Well, you look like fascists," and we replied with, "Well, what, what does that mean? What what do you mean? Just football fans, foot, white <laughs> white working class football fans? No, this is who we are. We don't stand for this shit." We are just trying to take a different approach than just lift a placard. So it worked in, uh, and then I believe not sh not long after COVID came, and it kind of just scuppered uh, the operation a bit. We haven't seen that same type of uh, mobilisation from the SCL apart from and uh, uh, <clears throat> during the BLM times, um, uh, BLM demo at Glasgow. Um, but yeah. Soon after, they were chased away and never came back again. And they've just sat in their, you know, just sat in their basement uh, dwelling once again. That's that's marking a outlook within Scotland. I don't know if Josh has any outlook from you know Leeds or uh, England in general. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. It's inspiring to hear, obviously, what's going on up in Scotland and everything, you know, and good to see that communists are still organising on the terrorists and you know showing them what's for and everything, you know, showing them it's not their space at all. Um, it's it's brilliant to hear. Um, for Leeds, I mean, you know, Leeds United is my football club. I'm I'm not ashamed to say that, obviously. So, mate, um, <laughs> um, we you know we used to, we still do, but we used to have a really bad reputation for being a very racist far right club. Um, and that's because, like you say, the National Front they were organised, they were absolutely rampant. Um, Bear and Road they were on the terraces, you know, the Bulldog or whatever their rag were called. Um, it were openly being spread about. Um, and then there was a, a massive fan initiative during the time of like the anti-Nazi league and everything um, called Marching All Together. They obviously play on Marching On Together. 
um, an anti-race, explicitly anti-racist magazine, you know, that was there to counter the bulldog and was shared around all the time. And obviously there were a couple of fights with, uh, with, with their side um, and they won in the end, you know, they, they, um, Leeds became a far more tolerant, accepting place, you know, um, you de- you know, if anyone did try and spark up, you know, some kind of racist chant or said anything of the sort, you know, they'd immediately know, you know, they'll get smacked around here, wouldn't they? You know what I mean? They'll, they'd know what would happen. So, and that, that's definitely been a fight down over in, in my part of the world. Um, don't get me wrong, it's not solved. And there's not enough of a concerted effort still to to actively fight against fascism, although there is obviously the, the football lads against football lads and lasses against fascism um, about in Leeds as well. But it's a, it's a much better place than it used to be. And um, we're absolutely on the winning side there. You know, um, you know, it's, it's good to see it's good seeing Alan Road anyway. A lot more, um, you know, a lot more different faces in the crowd. You know, um, it's, it's it's a lot better than it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, but back in my parents' time and everything like that. Yeah, no, cheers, Tommy. That's that's fantastic from both of you. Uh, you know, there's really as a kind of a growing uh, anti-fascist movement, I guess, really channeled through football in Britain, which is great. You know, internationally, a lot of folk uh, have seen a lot of the messages from Scotland down in England as well. I think most notably in the international scale has always been when Celtic's been playing Lazio, uh, the infamous uh, banners uh, depicting Mussolini uh, when fans were uh, Celtic away fans uh, and Rome were banned from banging in any banners. Fans uh, improvised and held each other <laughs> upside down, uh, sort of continuing that anti-fascist message. And, you know, the, the likes of football, uh, football lads and lasses against uh, fascism is, you know, it's really as... Uh, vitally important uh, within the, the the scene of football. You know, uh, football for a long time has been, you know, plagued by the mindless kind of casual uh, violence. You know, I think that a lot of the anti-fascist scene kind of stemmed outward from that. You know, a lots, of, lots of people asking the question at themselves going, uh, why am I just kicking this guy's head in when, uh, you know, uh, they're probably the same age as me you know, they might work in the same industry as me and everything. So a lot of that was kind of a born out out from that and out of the, the death of the, the kind of casual scene uh, going into the uh, late 90s when state surveillance uh, adapted tremendously. You know, nowadays uh, it's a monk's game going out for, for a casual scrap without, you know, your face covered or, or anything. You're, you're, having, you're having a brawl in the, the city centre, then uh, maybe six weeks, you're, six weeks later uh, you're getting your door kicked in in a dawn raid so uh, you know we want to see these these movements like FLAF and you know uh, grassroots anti-fascist groups at local clubs uh, spawning there and you know being an integral part of the community as we've talked about as players should be as the club should be uh, certainly with these anti-fascist movements as well and moving on just from that obviously we kind of touched earlier on the, the likes of the Super Leagues and that as well you know they're a frightening plague and prospect uh, to fans all over the world. We're already seeing it uh, with the likes of the leagues in Saudi Arabia, promising players the absolute world, the absolute fortunes. And like we've mentioned uh, as well, so many players have decided to throw their morals away uh, and, you know, jump at the chance for these these millions, uh, these mansions and uh, these other benefits of, of, of going there and, you know, taking the, the Saudi blood money. Uh, as well as what we're seeing uh, or what we did 
see an attempt at an almost English football league coup <laughs> with different uh, different teams in the Prem, you know, forming together, taking a band uh, an almost super league uh, with some of their European counterparts, uh, which was swiftly, you know, countered heavily uh, by fans as well. And, you know, a lot of clubs have, you know, muddied their hands and they're not looked at uh, the same way by by their fans as before so Gary it was just to, to come to you first then you know what do you think you know fans can do to save the beautiful game uh, from the, the likes of these super leagues and so on um, I think the fans done pretty well I think the outcry particularly in England was good to see um, even you know Manchester United fans and not you know all coming out uh, right across England basically because it would have ruined the, the game down there Uh not, not so much for, you know, the likes of us up here. Um, <laughs> we've only, uh, as a Mull fan, probably won one league title and that was in the 30s. Uh, so um, I actually won a Copa del Rey, but I won't bang on about that too much. But yeah, so when Josh was mentioned, even though, uh, you know, German football today um, is 50, you know, 51% owned by the fans, you know, the biggest club in Germany you know, didn't sign up for it in uh, Bayern Munich. So the fans did have a, you know, or the club itself said, nah, the, the fans will absolutely go crazy here if we do that. Um, and, you know, and you, that's why you've seen the likes of uh, PSG uh, and the big English and Italian and uh, Spanish clubs go for it um, because, you know, the profits and their margins matter much more than, you know, their... Um, they're not outreach to the to the local community. Uh, they'd rather you know play games at awkward times just to suit suit TV channels over in the far east. Uh, you know it's it's just ludicrous at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, I would say continue to protest against it. Don't let it happen. Don't allow it to happen in the sense. Don't I wouldn't say allow it to uh, be spoke about, but. You know, the, the more it gets brandished out there, when small teams get into these European competitions, you know, they get slated. Um, you know, the likes of, I wouldn't even say small teams, but the likes of Rangers and Celtic and that, when they get in there, you know, they're seen uh, as, you know, a waste of time after getting beat, you know, pretty handsomely by, you know, one of the big English clubs or one of the big uh, Spanish clubs, etc. But, you know, the, the wealth disparity there is, you know, you know, incredible. Um the English clubs have been put out of the Europe early as well, you know, finished in the same position. But, you know, they, somehow they're allowed, you know, four or five teams in each year. Uh, it's all just down to wealth at the end of the day. Um, I read, I think it was a, a book called The Roaring Red Front, um, which was pretty good. Um, it was just talking about left-wing football clubs, etc., uh, and, like, fan ownership. But it led on to, like, a public meeting that was... Uh, happened in Glasgow and it was I think it was a draft of a fans football charter. I think it was mainly on the women's game but it could most likely be adopted to the men's game itself. So adopting like a fans charter within each of our nations or a, a UFL led fan charter would be uh, you know great to see uh, and something to build upon because we can't just can't allow like essentially like a hunger games of football to happen, you know. Uh, but so I that's that's the way I would see it. And I think just protest, you know, uh, agitate against those uh, owners and um against the idea uh, selling away our game to the highest bidder, 
you know, because it's, it's our game. We built it, and we 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 pay for the put our asses on the seats each week. Uh, I just fight it to the the bitter end. Yeah, perfect, Josh. Is there anything else you want to add on that? Yeah, absolutely. You, you put it you put it beautifully there. You know, there's that just that moment of uh, you know that the the protest moment where you saw. Uh, the scenes outside of every major club, you know, every, every Super League club in England. And it's just absolutely swarming with fans um, having their say, you know, like teams I can't stand, you know, Chelsea and Man United and stuff. Um, hats off to them, you know. I don't say that often, mind. Um, but they were absolutely switched on. You know, there's footage of, um, of like Chelsea fans like screaming, you know, like having basically brawling with the with like, you know, executives and stuff and former players, you know, Petr Cech and stuff who who represents Chelsea now, you know, he's absolutely, he's getting absolutely screamed at um, for, you know, like, what the hell are they doing? But yeah, it was an absolutely beautiful moment to see and um, I think football fans are absolutely switched on about the dangers of, of money and capitalism in the game. Um, they, they see firsthand how how money and, um, you know, not let alone just the state ownership of clubs, but even these American billionaires and the like of that have come over here and just don't get the game, don't get working class people. Um, we're very switched on to to, uh, to being against that in England, um, especially at Manchester United. Again, I don't I don't like saying that, but bygones be bygones, you know. Um, yeah, and absolutely right. That even just the smallest part of fan ownership, you know, again, that example in Germany, um, not a single German club joined the Super League because... They do, although it is flawed and it is a concession under the capitalist system, there is that essence of the fans have the deciding say in these clubs. And, you know, you have, you have the, the, the Bundesliga has just accepted foreign investment now, um, a limited foreign investment. And um, the fans are going absolutely mental. You know, they're letting off fireworks in the stadium. They're, they're stopping games by throwing tennis balls on the pitch. You know, my own club, Union Berlin over there, uh, they stopped the game for, I think, five to eight minutes because they'd thrown chocolate coins onto the pitch and uh, tennis balls and they'd let pyro off. And some of the players are actually starting to eat these coins as well. And obviously, you know, proper shit sales and everything, but they're switched on over there. Um, but yeah, it's, um, the, and obviously the, the, the major thing of this as well is that we're not happy with the system as it is today either. You know, stopping a Super League isn't the, the be all and end all. Uh, UEFA is obviously just as corrupt you know, it's it's an evil organization, uh, to be frank. You know, absolutely driven by corporate greed. Uh, yeah, we we won in stopping the Super League, but the fight doesn't stop there. Keep protesting, keep fighting. Not only just to stop down and you mentioned of a Super League, but also to smash the system as it is right now as well. And if obviously, and obviously that comes under the complete transformation of society under socialism. But it's a start <laughs> breaking down UEFA. Yeah, fantastic comments. Cheers, that's brilliant. Uh, and yeah, I think there's just the message for you know any football fans listening, you know, just do your part, do do whatever you can. If you're a, a small group of fans that, uh, you know, collect for food donations, you know, you just do maybe some of the the kind of anti homelessness work that you do at your clubs. You know, band band together with with every circle around your club, and you know, really standing up and showing, you know, it's not it's the fans, it's the the community, you know, it's the people who who pay the tickets, it's the people who, as you say, Gary, put their arse in the seats uh, or their hands in the safe safe standing rails, uh, you know, that make the club what it is and, you know, we're not prepared to to sit back uh, and watch it be sold off to the highest bidder. So, no, it's absolutely fantastic from both of us. And I guess just kind of uh, to end in the final point, you know, we've talked previously just kind of on a general principle about, you know, fitness and that as well. 
uh, but you know, football and sport, you know, for the workers, you know, how integral will will this be uh, for us and you know the future of uh, a socialist Britain? It's absolutely vital, you know. Like uh, like Gary said as well, you know, it's always been our game. It's always been the workers' game, and it's our game to seize back as well. Um, so take the example that we talked about today under the GDR, um, a system that was um, absolutely, you know, brilliant in hindsight, but also had many problems, which hopefully I did, I did bring up as well. It wasn't absolutely perfect, uh, but it is, it is a starting point for when we do come to the future as well, and what the game, what the beautiful game can look like, and how it can be beautiful again, and that comes through ending this. Um, this 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 system of just discouraging sport every level and, and preventing opportunities for kids, you know, um, shutting doorways at every opportunity, um, allowing money to spoil the game. And yeah, maybe Man, Man City might be a good team to watch, but there's no connection there. There's no soul. Do you know what I mean? Like it's all about bringing that soul back into football again, like having that connection where, you know, you, you can see if you, again, like if you don't like what one of your players has done, and max time, you can give him a smack on the factory floor and and the like of that, you know, or rate him in the pub after the game, you know. Um, it's bringing back that working class essence of the game that had always existed, um, flourished to an extent under socialism and will be more beautiful in the future when we do see socialism in our lifetime, of course. Um, yeah, it's always been the workers' game. It will be again and we can make it beautiful again. Perfect. Gary, any thoughts? Really important, uh, you know, advancing our society as a whole, uh, you know, getting people's mental health and physical health back up to, you know, where it should be, making it accessible for everyone, you know, making it more uh, financially accessible uh, within, I don't know, when you, for instance, when I play football in Glasgow, you know, half the times it's like seven quid a game or something like that, and it's all big corporations that own them, uh, the Power League, etc., you know, all the council ones are, you know, either getting ran down to nothing or they're fully booked because the, the limited options are there. So, yeah, it's as integral uh, moving forward in a social society because we will need to build infrastructure there uh, to, you know, support the, the need for more physical and uh, more physical activity, whether that's not just football, you know, it's like indoor indoor sports, track and field, uh, just to get uh, everyone uh, acclimated, well, to get everyone uh, accustomed to a sport that, that suits, their, uh, suits their needs. Uh, yeah, I, it's su- super important uh, moving forward in a, in a social society and even in a capitalist society today, we need it. Uh, <laughs> we, need, we, need, uh, we, need uh, we need our havens, uh, places where we can actually enjoy uh about your escapism for the reality, which is this uh, <laughs> this uh, damning damning uh, uh, society and uh, country that we live under at the moment, government sorry that we live under at the moment. Bang on, uh, I couldn't have put it better myself from both of you. So I don't think there's anything I even need to add on to that. It was that good. But I guess just uh, before we finish off, just to see from from both of you if you've had if you have any you know final talking points and whereabouts can we you know find you on social media or that yeah um first of all thanks thanks for having me it's been an absolute pleasure to to talk with the both of you and it's been nice to you know to do a bit of um, chatting online again you know it's been a while um and i think i speak for every league member anyway we absolutely love spectre you know it's it's a brilliant voice for the league and it's uh, you do 
you do excellent work out here, you know, doing doing the good fight and putting out a good bit of propaganda out there. Um, but yeah, as for myself, um, you can you can find me on uh, on YouTube, uh, Socialist Swan. You can head back into the archives and see what I used to chat about a long time ago when I had more free time as a student rather than now where I'm working my ass off at stupid hours and I'm up at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Brilliant, can't wait. Um, yeah, or you can find me on Twitter as well where I am on at Socialist Swan. Um, where I mainly chat shit about Leeds right now and the always the eternal frustration and highs and lows of being a Leeds United fan. Uh, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Then once again, cheers for having me. Like uh, like Josh said, uh, thanks for having us on. Uh, never thought I'd be on one of these myself. Uh, I've listened to quite a fair few of them. Uh, but no, it's been good to speak alongside Josh tonight. Uh, so much, aye, so much knowledge there. Particularly in the East German game, it was always something that was uh, a bit infatuated by, but he takes it to a different level. Uh, but no, it's been really good tonight. Uh, and yeah, regarding social media, I'm, I, I don't do much on Twitter at all. So uh, you would, if you're on Instagram, uh, Instagram, Facebook, or uh, you would need to get me in the John Hunter stand at Firth Park to see me at a football game. But not Johnny Hunter stand, but John Hunter. Cheers. It will be Johnny understand one day. <laughs> what well, one day it will all be. <laughs> no, that's brilliant, Comics. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure. I definitely, you know, I'm always keen to talk on, you know, stuff to do with the GDR and you know, football is no exception on that and how we can really tie that in. You know, it's part of our, you know, understanding our ideological underpinning, you know, as communists to really draw lessons from from history, especially our own uh, history with likes of the GDR and, you know, the Soviet Union and looking at how other nations, uh, you know, Cuba and China, uh, Laos and Vietnam, you know, how they, they foster sports as, you know, uh, in their society as well. You know, it's something we, we really need to draw lessons on. And uh, as you kind of touched towards the end, Gary, you know, talking about how important it's going to be, not just important, not just waiting for it to uh, be a priority uh, in a socialist Britain, but fighting for it the now. Uh, within Cap Society, so I thought that was absolutely brilliant. But no, cheers again, guys. And you know, I think I'll let you get to your bed uh, for an early rise tomorrow. I think we're all going to need it. Uh, but I thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having us on. Likewise, cheers, comrades. Thanks, comrades, for tuning in to another episode of Spectre. As always, be sure to share Spectre with your friends, comrades, and co-workers. In the description below, I'll leave the link to Josh's YouTube channel. You can check his very specific GDR episode on football. As discussed about in this episode, it is not possible to separate the plagues of capitalism from our football enjoyment. It plagues even that. From bourgeois broadcasters to capitalist owners and former Nazi war criminals, our game is plagued by serious monsters. If we want for this game to replicate even a fraction of what the likes of the GDR and the Soviet Union game did, then we have to fight, and we have to fight now. Football is known as the beautiful game, but it is slowly losing her beautiful looks as her game continues to be sold off to the next highest bidder. To save our game from capitalists, we must fight capitalism. We must fight capitalism in the streets, in the workplace, and even in our own football grounds. Fans of all clubs must unite in this effort. Whether you carry a green, blue, red, yellow or hooped flag, we must stand together and fight against the fat cats ruining our game. Let us band together to take football back into the hands and feet 
of the workers. Let it be the fiery shot from the workers' boot that sees the capitalist relegated to the depths below. You're a good soldier, choosing your battle. Pick yourself up and dust yourself off and back in the saddle. You're on the front line, everyone's watching. You know it's serious, we're getting closer, this isn't over. The pressure's off, you feel it. This is Africa. This time for Africa.